0: and welcome to the King Street Halls. On behalf of the people of Orkney, I extend a warm welcome, Arcadian welcome, to the First Minister and Scottish Government Cabinet Ministers who are providing this unique opportunity for the people of Orkney to take part in this public question and answer session. The Scottish Government Summer Cabinet visit to Orkney started yesterday. And already, Ministers, you will have seen some of the best Orkney can offer, and have been learning about the work and aspirations of those involved. By the end of your visit, you'll have seen projects jointly supported by Orkney Islands Council, the Scottish Government, and other public sector bodies, the voluntary sector, and businesses. You'll have seen the value of this support to individuals, groups, communities, and businesses. You'll have met our people and experienced the culture and creativity of our isles. You'll have also heard about the struggles to realize ambitions, particularly in the current economic climate. This morning, you held your cabinet in the Chamber of the Council. Elected members of the Orkney Islands Council are used to making decisions that will impact on the people of Orkney. Often these are not easy decisions or comfortable decisions and can, in such a small community, lead to wide public debate. Today, you probably made decisions in the Chamber, which will sometime in the future impact on all the people of Scotland and possibly beyond. This audience is just as keenly interested in what you think and what made you take a course of action as are in the decisions made by their own elected members. You will, I assure you, have interesting and pointed questions put to you today. This afternoon, you, the audience, have a rare opportunity to put your own questions to the ministers. Some of you are here on behalf of your organisations, some as individuals who expressed a desire to be involved in this today. You represent a cross-section, a cross-section, not a cross-section, I hope, (laughs) of the people and uh, communities in Orkney. This is your chance to demonstrate what is important to Orkney. It's your chance to get answers to the questions and the things that are important to us. It's your chance to show ministers that although we may be the smallest local authority area, it is worth taking boats, trains and airplanes to come and meet with us. We have a voice and we have a view. It's now my pleasure to introduce Bruce Crawford, the Cabinet Secretary for Parliamentary Business and Government Strategy, who will uh, chair this question and answer session. Thank you.
1: Uh, good afternoon ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be in Orkney and thanks to Stephen for that warm welcome and to the Kirkwall East Church for allowing us to use these fantastic King Street halls. Now some of you in the audience uh, well, today will be more than aware uh, last evening the Scottish Government Ministers together with a, a good number of local people celebrated Orkney's creativity and culture at a reception to mark the year of Creative Scotland. And I don't need to tell this audience that Orkney has an international reputation for the quality and variety of its festivals. For instance, the St. Magnus Festival and jazz festivals took place earlier in the summer, and the blues and storytelling festivals are still to come. And these these very splendid halls themselves are one of the venues for the St. Magnus Festival this year. And Kirk Hall East Church itself has actually gained two awards from the Echo Congregation Scotland for its work, with fair trade and for its use of environmentally friendly products. So it's a fitting venue for today's public discussion, since culture, creativity and green issues have been to the fore during the many visits that ministers have had over the last couple of days. So with that way have background, let me just get down to business. The purpose of today's event is for members of the Scottish Cabinet and ministers to hear your thoughts and answer your questions. So the most important element of any of these public discussions is the audience itself, so I'm grateful you've turned out in such good numbers and ordinary here today. Uh, your participation in this event is what will make it a success. And in order to let you know who you'll be questioning today, I want to introduce the ministers and cabinet secretaries who are here. And I'll start on my immediate left with in the front, and then I'll proceed from the left at the rear. First of all, we've got Richard Lockhead, who's the cabinet secretary for Rural Affairs and the Environment. Followed by Fiona Hislop, who's the Cabinet Secretary for Culture and External Affairs. Then John Swinney, who's the Cabinet Secretary for Finance, Employment and Sustainable Growth. And Mike Russell, who is the Cabinet Secretary for Education and Lifelong Learning. Now, starting here with Keith Brown, we have Keith Brown, who's the Minister of Housing and Transport. Followed by Kenny McCaskill, who's the the Cabinet Secretary for Justice. Angela Constance, who is the Minister for Youth Employment, and Leslie Fraser, Scotland's Solicitor General. Now, I'm afraid the First Minister can't be here today due to family illness. Now, I know he would dearly have loved to have been here, but his loss is Nicola Sturgeon's gain. It is therefore my pleasure to introduce the Deputy First Minister of Scotland to make some introductory remarks before the question and answer session begins. So, can I ask you to invite and welcome the Deputy First Minister of Scotland.
2: Thank you very much, indeed, Bruce, and a big thank you uh, to Stephen, Not, not just for your introduction today, Stephen, but thank you very much for the very warm welcome you've given us throughout our visit on behalf of Orkney Islands Council. It's been greatly appreciated by me and by all of my colleagues. Um, The first thing I have to say is uh, I'm sorry, uh, but not from me. I have to say sorry from the First Minister. Uh, He's unable to be here with us today due to family illness, but he's really disappointed that he wasn't able to make it. I know he was looking forward to the cabinet today, to this question and answer session. He was uh, certainly looking forward to uh, the variety of announcements we were able to make yesterday around renewable energy. I have to say I think his disappointment grew somewhat when I told him on the telephone last night of all the delicious Orkney produce that we've been uh, eating since we've been here but uh, he wanted me to convey his sincere apologies to you. Uh, I'm sorry to say this is the last of uh, this summer's cabinet meetings uh, round and about Scotland. We were in Renfrew last week, we visited Skye last month and we're here in Orkney today. I think this is the fifth year that we've taken the cabinet out and about over the summer. A cabinet on tour is what we've dubbed it but we love it. It's a fantastic opportunity for ministers to get away from Edinburgh, uh, to get into local communities, to hear from people like you what you're concerns uh, are, what uh, issues are on your mind. It's an opportunity for all of you to raise your concerns very directly with us, to buttonhole us, to uh, make sure that we are left in no doubt about the issues that matter most to you as individuals and to the communities in, uh, that you live and work in. So I, I hope, and if past experience is anything to go by, I have no doubt that you will take the opportunity uh, in just a, a few minutes' time to ask questions and please feel free to ask uh, questions on any topic that is of concern to you, given that the primary point of today 's question and answer session is to allow you to ask uh, the cabinet questions not for us to talk uh, to you i 'm going to uh, try to keep my opening remarks uh, relatively brief, but I did want to take the opportunity to make some introductory remarks to speak a little bit about what uh, I and my colleagues have been doing in Orkney over the past day or so and to put that in some context to explain how our activities in Orkney really go to supporting our wider ambitions for Orkney and for Scotland as a whole. Um, I heard Bruce mention to you last night's Creative Scotland reception that was held in Kirkwall Town Hall, that was an absolutely fantastic showcase of the cultural and creative activity that takes place in Orkney throughout the year, and it really is a, an impressive array of talent that you have here, uh, literally at all points of the year, uh, and we all enjoyed that opportunity last night. Before going to the reception, I'd had the opportunity to visit the, the stunning, and I, I have to say I was quite blown away by this, uh, the uh, Mace Howe at Burial Chamber. And before that, I had the privilege of launching the next phase, the official challenge phase of the Saltire Prize at Stromness. And the reason I'm mentioning these uh, three particular visits that I had the opportunity to do yesterday is that they really gave me a very vivid impression of what an extraordinary place Orkney is. In Neolithic sites, older than the Great Pyramids, which certainly has the wow factor, you know, a very, very vibrant contemporary cultural scene and world leading expertise in one of the key energy sectors of the future Now, that's a, a powerful combination and one that I think uh, places Orkney extremely well to take advantage of many opportunities that lie ahead. It's probably worth saying just a little bit more about the Saltire Prize and marine energy In general, because I don't think it's politicians can be prone sometimes to exaggeration, um, but I don't think it is any exaggeration at all to say that the renewables revolution, and in particular the developments that we're seeing now in marine energy and wave and tidal power, are placing Orkney at the epicentre of one of the most exciting and fastest growing sectors of all sectors in the economy and I think that's incredibly exciting for Orkney but it is also redolent with opportunity. The European Marine Energy Centre which many of you here will be familiar with was established about nine years ago here in Orkney and back then I'm not sure anybody was absolutely convinced one way or the other whether it would be successful but today EMEC is the most important marine energy testing site anywhere in the world. Scotland's got more types of wave and tidal energy devices being developed and tested than anywhere else in the world, without exception, and Orkney is right at the heart of that. And as a result of that, marine energy already in Orkney employs 250 people, but that is only the start. By 2020, the expectation is that that number will be in the order of four times greater than that. And as marine energy starts to become commercially viable, and much of what the government is doing is about that uh, transition uh, period to get the technology to the uh, point where it is commercially viable, as that starts to happen, that figure is going to grow further. And the opportunities and the potential uh, really uh, is limitless The growth of marine energy has knock-on effects as well, because we've got to build the infrastructure that will support the growth of the technology and the growth of that sector. So uh, one of those knock-on benefits was something else we were able to announce yesterday, the investment by the Scottish Government of two and a half million pounds, which will uh, be joined with, I have to say, a larger contribution uh, from Orkney Islands Council to enable the peer at Copeland's Dock and Stromness to be redeveloped to meet the needs of the marine energy industry. So already you can see the the potential, not just in the narrow uh, energy field, but all of the infrastructure and knock-on benefits. Uh, We also see work underway at uh, other port facilities at Linus uh, and Hatston. That physical regeneration is a tangible and obvious physical sign of the impact of the renewable energy industry here. But more important than that, there's the human impact, because by creating skilled employment opportunities, renewable energy is going to play a massive part in maintaining and sustaining strong and vibrant towns and communities, not just here, but right across Scotland. I uh, had the opportunity to go out into the harbour at Kirkwall yesterday to see uh, the Scots Renewables' uh, floating tidal turbine, the first uh, company, Scott Renewables is the first company to uh, connect uh, a turbine like that up to the national grid. And uh, when I was there, I, I was speaking to a number of graduates, highly skilled graduates who are now working in very highly skilled jobs in a fast growing sector of the economy. And most of the graduates I spoke to yesterday were born and bred here in Orkney. Not all of them, but most of them. And and that also shows the potential, if we make sure the skills are are there, that we're training people for the sectors of the future, then for communities like this, uh, the the impact is immense. Our support for growth sectors like renewable energy and also tourism, the creative industries, food and drink, uh, are not uh, disparate. They're all part of the wider ambition that we have for Scotland and for the Scottish economy. We are absolutely determined, as you would expect of your government, to support jobs and promote sustainable economic growth, particularly in the tough economic times that we live in. I mean, you look at the figures, and there's not a lot of joy to be got from economic statistics at the moment, But, uh, and I don't underestimate for a second the scale of the challenge that we face but when you look at some of these statistics you'll see that the efforts that we are making with all of our partner agencies are having an effect they are having an impact so you see the labour market statistics showing scotland leading the uk in all three of the headline indicators our unemployment and economic inactivity rates are now lower and our employment rate is higher than the uk average now they're not good enough and don't uh, don't uh, hear me as saying that they are, eh, but they are doing better than elsewhere in the UK. And although economic figures show a slight decline in economic output, again, that's smaller in Scotland than it has been in the rest of the UK. Of course, any decline in output is a matter of very serious concern. And, And what that says to us as a Scottish government is that we need even more and very significant capital investment to get our economy uh, moving. Uh, there is an impressive and a growing array of economists right now saying that that's what our economy needs, that the austerity agenda being pursued by the UK government is counterproductive. It's holding back economic growth. And as growth declines, tax revenues decline, as unemployment remains high, the benefit spend goes up and the deficit grows. So measures that are designed, according to the UK government, to cut the deficit are actually leading to an increase in the deficit. So we are arguing very strongly for an alternative to that, for uh, capital investment to be accelerated, to be increased, so that we get our economy growing and we get our public finances back on track quicker. And here's the rub of the issue. We can argue for that, uh, and we do, and John Swinney makes that case day and daily to the UK government, Uh, But we can't take those decisions uh, entirely for ourselves as a Scottish Government. And that, for me, demonstrates the need for the Scottish Government to have full fiscal powers so that we can take our own decisions about how we best get our economy moving. Another good example of the prioritisation of the Scottish Government around capital investment, which is particularly relevant to Orkney, is our determination to create A world class broadband infrastructure for all parts of Scotland. And, you know, I, as a visitor here, don't need to tell you who live here about the serious limitations uh, that you experience in that. We are committing uh, large sums of investment to try to improve that position. Last month, Uh, We committed £120 million to the Highlands and Islands Next Generation Broadband Project. Uh, That will mean Highlands and Islands Enterprise, in partnership with BT, can make major improvements to the region's broadband network by 2015. We've also launched a £5 million community broadband initiative that's designed to accelerate broadband deployment in more remote and rural communities. But one of the biggest obstacles that we have faced in improving connectivity in rural areas has been the refusal of not just this UK government but successive governments to ensure that requirements that are placed on providers for coverage at the level of Scotland rather than at the level of the UK as a whole. So the current 3G network was required only to cover 80% of the population of the UK and it doesn't take uh, a genius and most people with any knowledge of Scotland will know that many of the missing 20% are here in Scotland and are living in some of our most remote and rural areas. And the same issues apply in relation to the forthcoming 4G auction. And I've singled out broadband because it's so important here and because it's a good example and perhaps an unexpected one, not the most obvious example of how our current lack of powers has a genuine impact on the quality of life of people in rural areas. Now, our investment in Orkney's infrastructure uh, goes beyond uh, marine technology, it goes beyond broadband. Uh, We are also investing... enormously in uh, Orkney School's investment programme due to be completed next year. That programme is backed by a £40 million grant from the government and will lead to a new Kirkwall Grammar School, a new Stromness Primary School, a new Patdale Halls of Residence, uh, and additionally there's going to be a new theatre and swimming pool at Piccoy uh, Leisure Centre. Uh, I, as Health Secretary, am also particularly enthused... By the plans around the Balfour Hospital and Kirkwall Dental Centre uh, which are at the moment at outline business case planning stage. So there's a lot of activity uh, ongoing and I hope I've demonstrated or I'm demonstrating to you the commitment and the determination on the part of the Scottish Government to do everything we can to support the communities, the culture and the economy of Orkney. I would always expect Uh, And hope, in fact, to come to communities like this and to have people say, we want you to do more because it's your job always to keep the government on our toes and press us to do more and go faster. But we have a determination to do everything we can and we're doing uh, everything we can within our existing powers to promote enterprise and support communities, but on a range of issues. Promoting recovery and telecoms are just two that I've highlighted, but I could easily have talked about the challenges of welfare reform or the role of the crown estates, uh, going back to uh, the uh, comments earlier about renewables technology. On a range of issues, our ability to deliver for Scotland can so often be constrained by the lack of powers that we have as a government. And that's why I, as a a member of an SNP government, believe that independence would be right for Scotland, not for abstract reasons, but because having those powers and having the ability to use those powers in combination with the powers we already have increase our ability as a government to deliver for you and for the communities you live in. So there you go, that's uh, what we've been doing in Orkney and that's uh, a bit about our ambitions and our determination to deliver for Scotland. But I started uh, out by promising not to speak for too long and as you know, politicians always keep their promises. So I'm going to uh, leave it there and uh, hand back to Bruce Crawford and end with an open invitation to you to feel free to ask us any questions you like. We'll all do our best to answer your questions as fully as we can today. If there are points we want to come back to you on or merit further discussion, we'll take your details and arrange for that to happen. But finally, uh, let me just thank you very much for being here today and for showing the interest that you're showing by your presence here today. And I'm now thoroughly looking forward to the question and answer session that will follow. Thank you very much.
1: I'd just like to take you through how we're going to run this event this afternoon so that everyone understands the ground rules. But first of all, let me get myself out of some trouble. Um, earlier on, I introduced Scotland's Solicitor General. The Solicitor General who's quite capable of putting people in jail. I gave her the wrong name. It's not Leslie Fraser, it's Leslie Thompson. So do forgive me, Leslie. I hope I'm not going to find myself prosecuted anytime soon. Um, well, what we'll do this afternoon is I'll ask you to, and I'll go around the hall trying to put questions into batches of three So that allows the the process to be properly managed. The questions will be fielded by the Deputy First Minister and she'll choose which Minister will answer the questions. There are roving mics. There are three of them. So if you you are asking a question, please, when you have that mic, tell us who you are. And if you're representing an organisation, tell us which that organisation is. That would be very helpful. Um, We're trying to finish this today at about 2 o'clock. And and I've been told that's the, the last moment we can finish because... We've got other travel arrangements and ministers are going off to do other events also. And um, so I'll try to start to get to the end of the questions at about 1.50 um, and ask the, the, the last series. Now, I hope we don't run out of time, but if we do, there's a box in the annex where you can put your question and, on a bit of paper, and we'll make sure you have the answer to your question. Uh, these kind of sessions I always find work best when the audience asks succinct questions, obviously put your point. Because that enables me to make sure the ministers also give you succinct answers. So please try and help me as we go through that process this afternoon. And I'll ask who wants to ask the first question. Got this lady here. In the front here.
3: Thank you. Um, Sally Inkster, Chief Executive, Orkney Housing Association. The Housing Association, which is the only one in Orkney, was formed in 1985 and since then we've built nearly 900 units, of which 228 are for low-cost home ownership. We're grateful for the amount of money that we've received from the Scottish Government in the past, which has enabled us to deliver this affordable housing for Orkney. And I'm aware that the the Government continues to give priority to this investment, but recent changes have placed the decision-making about the allocation of your funding with the local authority, and has made us dependent on the local authority to top up your subsidy. Now, the Orkney Islands Council has an active council house building program itself, and is quite clearly conflicted in this matter, um, in making the decisions about allocating the investment money. They've recently decided that their objectives are best met by retaining all of Orkney's funding for themselves and by topping that up from their strategic reserve fund. The consequence for the association is no development programme going forward and our last project will complete August next year. We will have to look at the staff restructuring and uh, as a result, we'll lose our capability to deliver new built housing. I believe Orkney will be less responsive, uh, less fleet-footed with any new monies that come available for house building if the only housing association is no longer developing. There will be no more shared ownership, no more shared equity for Orkney if we're not developing. So my question to the cabinet is, does the Scottish government believe RSLs have a strategic role to play as providers of new affordable housing? And if so, how do they intend to prevent the decline in their development capacity and the inevitable skills loss from um, resulting from the current investment policy.
1: Thank you, Sally. We also like to ask a question. Anybody else on this side? Gentleman here, or unless there's somebody further back. Anybody else back here? On you go.
4: Hello. uh, My name is uh, Alastair MacLeod. I'm chairman of Orkney Alcohol Counselling and Advisory Service. Um, This year and last year, our client numbers have soared, yet we suffered a loss of 20,000 pounds in income through cuts. There is to be a £95 million released from extra rates on supermarkets. This money is not tightly drawn to alcohol services such as ours per se. When will this new money be released and can it be targeted at services such as ours? And I would just say that the services we provide are uh, alcohol counselling, general counselling, uh, youth counselling and pupil counselling in schools. Thank you.
1: Thank you, sir. We've got the last question of the first three across here, sir. Sir?
5: Brian Crowe, just an individual from Stronson, uh, changed the subject, really. I want to raise the subject of same-sex marriage. Uh, in the, in its manifesto, the SNP promised to consult uh, the people on the, re- the redefinition of marriage. It did this, and the Scottish people, in response to the cons- consultation, overwhelmingly said, no, but you, as a party, insist that you will continue on with this plan and this appears to me totally undemocratic and in view of the fact that it was made as a promise when it was uh, before the uh, before the uh, consultation was made that you would take effect and notice what people said but you've ignored them could i ask why and i mean how how can we trust the snp
4: thank you right okay
2: Okay, can I, let me start, I'm going to take these questions in reverse order actually, so I'll start with the question, sorry sir, I I didn't catch your name, uh, the the gentleman who asked about same-sex marriage, Brian, Brian. 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 Uh, thank you, Um, I'll I'll take that first and then I'll I'll run through the other questions, can I say first of all that the issue of same-sex marriage is a very difficult one, Um, the government has had to weigh up uh, different views uh, expressed by different people, there are very, very strongly held views on the issue on both sides of the debate and I guess the the first observation I would make is that no matter what decision the government takes on this issue, there are some people who are going to feel very strongly that it's the wrong decision and I respect the views of those who don't agree with same-sex marriage and I think it's right and proper that those uh, views continue to be expressed and we continue to listen and to talk um, about this issue. Uh, the government's taken the decision, um, as you, you rightly say, uh, that we will bring forward legislation on same-sex marriage. I think a very important point to stress here though is that it's not a party political issue. Certainly as far as the SNP is concerned, this is an issue that will uh, have a free vote amongst MSPs. There will be no party whip applied to this. So. Every individual MSP in the SNP, I can't speak for other parties, but I would hope other parties would take the same view. Certainly every SNP, MSP will have the opportunity to weigh up the issues, to listen to their constituents and to reach their own view on this issue. And I I believe that's the right way to decide the issue. Parliament on a free vote, ultimately taking the decision. Uh, Although we have said that we will bring forward legislation, we've been equally very clear that while the government, as governments have done in the past, uh, regulate the civil contract of marriage, no government should and this government will not tell any church or any individual celebrant of marriage that they are in any way compelled to conduct same-sex marriages. Churches will be absolutely free if that is in accordance with the tenets of their faith to say we do not wish to uh, celebrate same-sex marriages as will individual celebrants. Uh, I don't believe it would be right for any government to take a a different view in that respect. So that's the position we have taken. We we understand and I am acutely aware of the sensitivity and of the controversy around this issue. Uh, We have said very clearly and we are now in a process of talking in some detail to a number of stakeholders, to the churches uh, and to other groups around concerns that exist about moving down this road to see what else we can do to address those concerns whether that's bringing forward in legislation further protections to the ones we've already committed to around freedom of religion and freedom of speech uh, or whether we uh, need to do anything in addition to address any concerns people have about the implications for education so that process will continue in a very open and collaborative way i don't expect um, i genuinely don't expect on this issue that we will ever get to a point where everybody agrees about the way forward but if we have the debate in Uh, the the tone and and the manner that I hope, then I hope we can get through the debate and the Parliament ultimately will take the decision uh, based on what MSPs uh, themselves come to as their conclusions. I hope that uh, answers your question. I'd be happy to have a further discussion with you at the end of the session if you want to uh, go into any more of the detail of the issue. On Alistair MacLeod's question about alcohol, I'm going to hand over to John Swinney in a second, particularly on the supermarket levy uh, issues. If I can just say on the general question of alcohol. Uh, Tackling alcohol misuse has been something the government has prioritised. You know most people, many people drink responsibly and there's nothing wrong uh, with consuming alcohol responsibly but we've got an issue in Scotland of some people drinking too much and that's having an impact on different sectors of our society and economy. Uh, Organisations like yours Alistair do a fantastic job and I, I know it's very difficult right now in the voluntary sector, given the financial climate, although John Swinney has you know, worked very hard within his budgetary process to try to protect the voluntary sector as much as, as he possibly can. Uh, but services like yours are essential to that uh, bigger effort we're making to try to rebalance our relationship with alcohol and make sure that some of the damage it does is lessened in future. But I'll hand over to John just to say a bit more about that before Uh, handing over to Keith Brown on your uh, question about housing associations and the allocation of housing funding.
6: uh, Thanks, Deputy First Minister. Can I make two points in relation to to the the, the points put forward by us? The first is on the question of the the public health supplement that we've applied to large retailers who uh, sell both tobacco and alcohol products. Now, this is not... um, I can't tell you that I was showered with rose petals for my decision to apply that but I did it because I wanted to kick start a process of um, strategic change in our public finances which is to invest much more in preventative expenditure measures and we have focused those Alistair and um, principally on three areas on um, reducing reoffending on care of the elderly and on early intervention in the early years agenda for our our youngest citizens. And we've chosen those because we think that's where we need to make the greatest shift in the move away from what is a more reactive service to kind of picking up the pieces rather than intervening early to uh, address some of the difficulties. Now, of course, some of that methodology is essentially at the core of the service that your organisation presides over of trying to find ways of redirecting people away from alcohol abuse into other ways of life. So that the resources that are coming from the public health supplement are going into the um, preventative spend agenda. So those resources are allocated within the government's agenda. The second point is in relation to your um, your wider point about funding. I'd be happy to have a word with you afterwards just to understand exactly the flows of resources that are coming into the project and what the pressures have been there. What we've tried to do as a government is to protect the support that goes into into place to the third sector within Scotland, certainly within the government's national budget, um, in terms of the core funding that goes into the third sector, we've kept that um, very stable overall, uh, despite the reductions in the budget that we face. Um, Clearly, you may be uh, dependent to some extent on other channels of funding through local authority or through the health board, but I'll, I'll chat that through with you later on. What we're encouraging through the focus that we have on um, integrating services at local level is uh, a real working together between public bodies to ensure a greater role for the third sector in the delivery of effective public services and uh, I'm very keen as part of our whole public sector activity. We strengthen that role and actually at the end of this discussion this afternoon, I'm going off to meet a range of voluntary sector groups um, as part of Voluntary Action Orkney, recognising the significance that these groups can play in communities of this of this nature. But I'd be very happy to, to, to see the, hear the details later.
2: Okay, um, Sally asked about uh, the role of RSLs as housing providers and developers and also a specific uh, question around the process used for the allocation of affordable housing investment. Uh, Keith, do you want to respond to that?
7: Yes, I thank uh, Sally for her question and for taking me around recently, around some of the developments that you have in Orkney. Uh, I was very impressed, first of all, by the specification of the houses and the fact that in one of the houses there were two young boys who were Hibernian fans who were keen to show me a poster in their bedroom. I mention that because somebody's got to give shelter to Hibernian fans, especially after last night. the point you make, uh, I think it's true to say, and there are councillors here that will know this better than me, and perhaps they can discuss it after the event when we go downstairs uh, if it's still in doubt, but as I understand it, the council's decision is not to take all of the funding. I think it's the current proposal is around two-thirds of the funding, although it's not been resolved fully in the council yet. That's, that's the latest information I have. The government's taken the decision to give the strategic uh, role to local authorities because of the democratic base that they have they do have an elected mandate and we think it's right they should take these decisions. Although so far across Scotland, it has been done, uh, to my view, in collaboration with local housing associations. And certainly from the government's point of view, it's good to have a mix, not just the one provider. Um, So we would be keen to see a continuing role for housing associations. The direct answer to your question is yes, the government does see a strategic role for local housing associations. That's been expressed in different ways in different parts of the country. For example, some are no longer involved in development, as you mentioned, um, others are, are looking to work with other housing associations, less easy to do for Orkney, I understand that point, uh, but working with other housing associations to come together and consortia to access new funds in order they can undertake some large-scale projects. But I'm happy to sc- discuss the Council's uh, current position with Sally afterwards, and we can get perhaps some more clarity downstairs on the latest position.
1: Thank you, Keith. have got a gentleman here, um, a gentleman the second back row there in the middle, and a lady here.
4: Michael King, a uh, Stromness resident, Stromness being part of a national scenic area which may give you a clue as to what I'm about to ask. I was interested to hear from the Deputy First Minister that she'd visited Mays Howe. Uh, if this had happened a week before, she would have been able to visit the internationally renowned site of the Ness of Brodgar, But unfortunately that's now covered in Uh, due to, no doubt, to funding not being available any longer. My question is uh, aimed at the, what I perceive to be an imbalance uh, between the natural heritage and natural historic uh, heritage of uh, Orkney and the undoubted importance of renewables, both in wind turbine areas and also, of course, in tide and wave. Now the imbalance that I referred to is one that I perceive to be between the two. Now the Deputy First Minister mentioned infrastructure in her opening remarks, and of course infrastructure can impact and often does impact uh, upon the natural and historic heritage of these islands. Now my question is this, what is being done to correct in my view the imbalance between the undoubted uh, emphasis on renewable energy and the natural heritage of the islands and other parts of Scotland because I perceive that balance to have gone off the scale and uh, I would be interested to hear what reassurances can be given on the natural and historic element of that.
1: Thank you Michael, we've got a gentleman back here and then a lady. you know on that it's not often I'm called a gentleman,
8: that's very good. John Ross Scott, uh, Chair of NHS Orkney. Uh, I'm going to uh, echo the uh, question that um, was put by the, the, the Deputy First Minister in saying that we want you to do more and we want you to do more in special fields. I think Orkney has proved itself as a test bed for innovation um, you mentioned, um, Deputy First Minister, the renewables industry, but of course there is so much more happening in Orkney. Um, I'm looking towards the health and social care issues and uh, the creation of, of Orkney Health and Care, and how that's taken uh, partnership working really to a, a new domain. And what I'd like to see, and I think there's others in the room that I, I would, would agree with me, I hope, is that you allow us to take that to new new boundaries. I hear what you're saying in regard to um, no structural change. I totally accept that. At at this time, it's the wrong thing. Um, Four years, I think, was mentioned. But in that time, can we, in Orkney, take partnership working that bit further? Um, Evolution, not revolution, but take it a bit further. How far will you allow us to go Uh, to get to a stage where we may come to a situation, but I've got to watch because I'm not allowed to say Western Isles and Shetland, have said, don't mention single public authority. So I won't, um, in regard to how far we can take it, uh, so we have true, all-embracing partnership working in this county.
9: Um, I'm Rosie Whittles, and I've been a teacher in Orkney since 1973. and recently uh, have just gone into supply teaching. Uh, So my first part of the question is my uh, the supply rate means that I'm down half pay. Now, I don't think any other sector of the um, society community has had to take such a low uh, such a huge cut in in our pay. Uh, It's uh, roughly about 10 pounds an hour that you receive to teach um, in, in school now. And uh, we're only allowed for five hours, not even for any preparation, or bre- the break time, the lunch time, so it's absolutely ludicrous. But as a primary school teacher, I want to ask if same-sex marriage becomes law, will I not be allowed to express an honest opinion in school on families? Will I be forced to teach against my conscience And could expressing a differing opinion result in me losing my job? Okay.
2: Okay, let me, um, again, I'll I'll start and uh, do them in reverse order. Let me take that point, Rosie. I'll ask Mike to uh, respond to your point on supply teacher rates. I I said uh, at the end of my previous answer on same-sex marriage that we're in some detailed uh, discussion at the moment with different stakeholders about how we ensure that any legislation we bring forward has protections within it that ensures that people are not penalised or discriminated against because they happen to hold a different view to the view of uh, the legislation going through Parliament and you know I don't want there to be a position where uh, a teacher is in the the position that you described so that's the very detailed work that we're doing right now we don't uh, teach these matters through a national curriculum we've been very explicit that in the case of uh, Catholic schools for example the Catholic Education Commission will continue to determine the faith content of the curriculum so it is not the intention oh. to put anybody who takes a, a different view on same-sex marriage into the position of feeling that they cannot express their view eh, and that they're being in any way penalised for that. And you know, I'd be happy to take your details and uh, keep you appraised of that work uh, as it develops. Um, Mike, do you want to take the yeah. point about your over there, about supply teacher rates?
10: Yeah, absolutely. But just before I do, I mean, I just emphasise what you said, Deputy First Minister, a very strong focus On ensuring in education that uh, teachers are entitled to give their opinions, to give their views and to make sure that they can exercise their conscience in the way they see most appropriate and indeed we're working very hard both within denominational schooling and outside denominational schooling to make sure that's the case. Uh, Last year when the pay settlement was reached for 2012 and 12-13 Uh, there was a a great deal of agonising about how uh, we could move to a final agreement between the unions, the local authorities and government. And that's how uh, pay settlements are come to in education. as a tripartite arrangement. Uh, Local authorities, unions and government work together. There was a unanimous agreement um, at that time that we had to remove some monies from the system. And the uh, small amounts of money, but the thing that was settled upon with great reluctance, was short-term supply. Now, it's important to emphasize short-term supply because if supply teaching is more than five days, then the previous arrangement of a supply teacher being paid on the scale of the salary that they have reached uh, is adhered to. But on short-term supply, that's supply for uh, individual days, the agreement was that that would revert to the first point on the scale, and that's what you're referring to. So supply teachers who do short-term supply uh, find themselves in these occasional days working to the first point of the salary scale. Now normally, most people are doing that work are, are teachers who are uh, endeavouring to get a full-time job. So they'll be just into the profession, will just have done their probation, they'll normally be on that first scale and they'll be working their way through. There are some teachers who uh, choose, or, or, or for other reasons, do short-term supply, and they've found themselves hit by this. It's regrettable, the unions did agree to it reluctantly, but did agree to it, but we also stress the local authorities, and I'm sure this local authority looking to see Leslie Manson over there, uh, have thought about ways in which they could ensure that most teachers who do supply can get onto supply that's longer than simply one day or two days. For example, if a, if a teacher goes and does supply in a school regularly over an entire term, that can be seen as a package of supply that is more than the five days. Now, I don't defend, and I haven't defended this from the very beginning, as being the best way we could go forward. But given the extraordinary financial pressures we are all under, this seemed to be the only possible way that we could get the settlement, and it wasn't imposed, it was agreed by the teaching unions. Now, one or two of the teaching unions still object to this, they're still campaigning on it, but there was an agreement, it was reached between the unions, and I would hope, over a period of time, we could make sure that short-term supply really only applied to those people who've come into the profession uh, at the very earliest stages and are working their way through.
2: Okay, um, I will respond to John Ross Scott's question. Um, I think John, you're right to point out the spirit of innovation that is alive in Orkney. And as you know, very uh, well aware of the work around integration of health and social care. You are in many ways a pioneer for the work we're now doing nationally to bring together health and social care to improve the outcomes for people who rely on these services. Um, In answer to your question, how far are we going to allow you to go? You're you're doing some groundbreaking pioneering work on this. I'm not aware that you needed our permission to do it. You worked on the relationships locally, you made decisions locally about what was in the best interest of the people that you serve, and you're seeing the outcomes uh, or you're beginning to see the the outcomes and the benefits of that. And my advice to you would be to uh, go on with that, to work out where you can work more closely uh, together between the health service and the local authority um, and do it in the interests of the services that you're delivering and and the people you're serving. Uh, My uh, only uh, comment about structures is often when you start a discussion about what structures you need to change everybody becomes obsessed by the structural change and we lose sight of what it is we're actually trying to achieve by the structural change so I think it's better to do it the other way around allow the structures to follow uh, the purpose and the objective of what you're trying to do um, and you have a permission to be bold and to be um, ambitious about that and to continue the very good work that you're doing I've been thoroughly impressed with the the working relationship and what that relationship is delivering between Kathy, uh, the the chair of the uh, the chief executive, sorry, of the health board here, and, and Albert's chief executive of the council, and you know, keep at it and keep delivering because you know that is fulfilling the objective we want to see of public authorities working closer together to deliver better services. Right. The first of the series of three questions that Michael asked is an extremely good question, and I'm going to um, take a wee bit longer to answer this because it was a cross-cutting question. So I think it's probably appropriate that we answer it in a cross-cutting way. Michael, the reason I I mentioned both the renewables uh, visits I'd made yesterday and the visit to Maze Howe was to try to demonstrate our understanding of the fact that, you know, Orkney has that rich array of potential and opportunities and it is important to get a balance uh, between them so that you're you're not losing uh, one opportunity because of a, a focus on another. And certainly we agree that that balance has to be struck. It's not always easy in practice to strike that balance, but it's certainly an objective we agree with. I'm going to I'm going to ask Fiona um, to say something here from the perspective of Orkney's cultural heritage. I'm then going to ask Richard to talk a wee bit about the natural heritage of, of Orkney. And then uh, John, who has overall responsibility for renewables, um, to say something about that and perhaps uh, demonstrate that we are a joined up government by bringing that discussion together in a way that I hope convinces you that
11: we agree with you about that need to strike a balance. Fiona? First of all Michael mentioned the Ness of Brodga, a hugely important archaeological site and I think what will be revealed there will I think again reinforce the importance of the Neolithic site and the World Heritage site that we have. Here in Orkney. Um, in terms, of how we protect and promote that, I think that's extremely important. That's why last night we saw the, the launch of the, the digital uh, representation of Maze Howe. I was at Scarborough in the Ring of Broadway yesterday. And this is a world responsibility we have, not just either in Orkney or indeed in Scotland. And I think the World Heritage Management Group have a great responsibility in doing that and will get our support in doing that. I'm not aware of any uh, renewables challenge around that area or any applications. Obviously, the local authority, um, in terms of its planning responsibilities, would have to take um, awareness of, of an issue. But I understand there is no no need for that uh, decision because there is no applications in that area and I doubt there ever would be but in terms of therefore how we manage that uh, in terms of the process historic Scotland I'm responsible for uh, regularly make representations or notes if there are applications in an area of um, built heritage uh, concerns so uh, but it's about it's about the balance with something very very special in, in Orkney and part of my role and responsibility is to make sure the world knows about it so you get the benefits of the visits but also protection because we also released yesterday the third of the figurines from Westry together with the people from Westry and the Notlands there are really under coastal erosion and there's a real you know, risk there so we have to move very rapidly to make sure that particular site is excavated as quickly as possible.
12: Well Orkney is a spectacular place and it's got spectacular seas and of course at the same time as having these magnificent waters and landscapes there are massive economic opportunities as we've just been discussing. So all governments down the generations have had to strike that balance between economic development and protecting our precious environment and clearly offshore renewables is a massive opportunity in Orkney and there's been announcements over the last couple of days about that as well. So that's why the, the parliament's Over the last couple of years, I've brought in marine legislation because we're very conscious that we've got a precious marine environment below the waves. So we have to make sure we're protecting that at the same time as developing the offshore renewables potential. So there are a couple of candidates around Orkney for marine protected areas, for instance, which is a new designation under the Marine Bill for Scotland. And these kind of designations are there because we want to recognise and designate special marine features. And that can also include historic features that lie beneath the waves, uh, as in kind of built heritage but below the waves, uh, not just the natural environment like species and plants, etc. So that's now in place in Scotland and that's uh, leading uh, the whole of Europe, in my estimation, in terms of how we're trying to protect Marine environment. And of course, in terms of offshore renewables, we've got the government agency, Marine Scotland, to work closely with the developers, uh, the local authority in Orkney, and any project that goes in place in our waters, of course, has to go through thorough environmental assessments to see if there's any measures that have to be taken as part of the project just to protect any of the features. So I think we are uh, blazing a trail in Scotland in terms of trying to get that balance just right. On the one hand, achieve these massive economic opportunities. Uh, but at the same time protect our, our environments as well and and John no doubt will speak about what happens onshore where there's uh, a big responsibility the local authority as well as national government to do the, the same kind of approach.
6: Okay John. I think in, in the first point I would say to, uh, to, to to Michael is that every single application um, is subjected to the most rigorous and comprehensive scrutiny and indeed uh, you know I'm quite sure I could Fill this room with developers who would complain about the level of scrutiny and information that has to be provided for any application to be considered, Um, and they regularly complain about that to uh, to to, to ministers. Um, Now, we haven't kind of given in to that because we think it is absolutely fundamental that every application has got to be considered um, in in great detail it has to be subject to to wide consultation, so if we take some of the particular issues around about Orkney, and and both my colleagues have referred to that, um, there will be issues of a specific marine character that have to be taken very much into account and competing interests that would have to be considered. And then on the historic question that uh, uh, Fiona and her team look at, particularly in the perspective of Historic Scotland, who will be statutory consultees in all of these processes and in any consideration of these applications, you are are obliged, obliged isn't even a hard enough word, to take into account the perspective of Historic Scotland. And Historic Scotland um, uh, articulate that perspective uh, very wisely, in my opinion. They are utterly respectful of Scotland's um, heritage and uh, the, the basis of that and the importance of that in respect of our obligation to the past and the care and the stewardship of the past. Um, And all these Historic Scotland um, uh, facilities, they are, uh, you know, the the billboards say they are, you know, carrying out the functions on behalf of Scottish ministers. It's a a duty they take very seriously, but also in terms of how these uh, sites contribute into the the modern-day tourism opportunities that we have. So that um, assessment... Of all of the issues and considerations is taken immensely seriously by all aspects of government in, in, in the process. Second point I'd say to you is that uh, uh, there is always um, an attention, despite every application we looked at individually, to look at cumulative impact. Um, so uh, where some developments perhaps get approved, it doesn't mean to say that that uh, that, that, that then enables all sorts of other developments to, to, to get approved, because there is the sense of cumulative impact that needs to be taken into account. As an illustration of some of the decision making that we have arrived at, you know, we have turned down plenty of wind farm applications because they have been in unsuitable territory. Um, uh, my, my colleague in the last parliament, Jim Mather, to much consternation, turned down a major application in the Isle of Lewis because it was just quite clearly and utterly totally unsuitable to the terrain and the circumstances of that area. And it was turned down before anybody wasted too much money on trying to pursue uh, the argument. Um, So we we will take these decisions where the location is utterly unsuitable and in contradiction to planning policy. Um, We rely on an element of participation and cooperation with local government. Uh, Orkney is one of the councils of Scotland that has a spatial framework in place for the consideration of wind farm developments, uh, which has been formulated locally and that has a material uh, significance in the planning process. And I I welcome the fact that Orkney Islands Council has formulated that. I wish all local authorities in Scotland had done that, that might have made some of our decisions in other parts of the country slightly more um, uh, straightforward to take. Um, but I welcome the fact that it's happened in Orkney. Final point that I'll just say to you on, on reassurance, Michael. Um, in our two national parks, we have absolutely no wind farms. Um, so you have know, vast areas of Scotland's natural landscape where there are no wind farms um, because of the issues around about uh, scenic beauty. And in the national scenic areas, there are only five small, all of them community wind farms with community ownership and community uh, roots in any national scenic area in Scotland. So the government does take these issues immensely seriously and as my colleagues have said, we have to balance competing (coughs) factors. But one of the principal issues we have to preserve is the fundamental historic and natural character of Scotland, which is a unique um, impression of what our country is and how our country has developed.
1: Thank you, John. OK, we'll try to be
2: briefer in our next round of answers. I was
1: just about to say that. Could get a bit quicker, ministers. We might get through some more questions. But the audience need to remember this as well. I've got a gentleman here, a gentleman there, a lady across here.
13: Thank you. Uh, it's Ronnie Johnson here. Um, for some considerable time, and to be fair, through successive governments, um, Orkney Islands Council has received funding through the block grant at a figure considerably less per head of population than those in Shetland and the Western Isles. Indeed, I think just prior to the 2011 holiday elections, this stood at a figure of over 700 pounds. And whilst I don't know the current position, I'm sure it's probably over 600 pounds per person, which is a significant sum, as I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, I know this has been the subject of discussions involving both the council and our MSP. And I also know that the figures are regulated through the Barnett formula. Um, what I would like to know is, how is it that this formula appears to put, well, not appears, it does put on at a disadvantage uh, what factors count against us and what is being done to try to reduce this discrepancy or even eliminate it. Thank you.
14: Okay. This gentleman here then, with the
1: lady down here.
14: Hi, my name's uh, Richard Abshire. I work for a company called Scottish Sea Farms, which are the second largest producer of salmon in the UK. Uh, we used, uh, we're producing <coughs> about 30,000 tonnes of salmon just now in in Scotland, and uh, currently 5,000 tonnes in Orkney. Uh, We hope to invest 30 million pounds and create six new salmon farms in Orkney over the next three years. Most of this investment will be with Scottish suppliers, and these new farms will create at least 40 new jobs, some of which will be apprenticeships. What we would like to see is a more efficient planning and regulatory environment with appropriate balance and stewardship. This is currently not the case, and the proposed aquaculture and fisheries bill is not bringing anything to to help the situation. It's unfortunate that the First Minister isn't here today, as he has made positive comments about the salmon farming industry in the past. However, we need actions, not words, that enable us to create wealth, not only locally here in Orkney, but for Scotland as a whole. Uh, So my question is, will the Scottish Government engage further with the aquaculture industry to try and... Help reduce bureaucracy and red tape, help us move forward, expand, and compete with other countries on an even playing field. Thank you, sir. And this lady here with the RSPB jacket
15: on. Hi, yeah,
2: indeed. I'm Sarah Sankey from RSPB Orkney. And my question is following on from a letter from Stuart Stevenson to Orkney Islands Council convener expressing concern over the protection of the environment of Scapa Flow from marine non-native species released from ballast water. We ask whether the Scottish Government is aware that the UK Government has yet to sign the IMO Convention on Ballast Water Management, which will place stricter controls on ballast water release, and whether the Scottish Government can assist in a speedy resolution of this issue in order to protect Scapa Flow and other Scottish harbours from invasion by non-native species. All right, I'll take them in the order they were asked. Uh, Ronnie's question about Orkney Islands Council funding. John, can you take that one? Um,
6: Yes, um, essentially the distribution of local authority resources is governed not by the Barnett formula, but by the local government distribution formula, which is essentially uh, fundamentally driven by population character, uh, population numbers in different localities. There's a variety of other indicators that are applied on that which uh, will relate to rurality, sparsity of population, um, uh, factors of deprivation um, and then some other factors are added into it such as the provision for uh, special islands needs allowance which has uh, also been um, a component of the local government funding formula. Uh, The formula is agreed between the government and all local authorities in Scotland and um, it was last reviewed in 2009 and the agreement that was reached and this involved uh, a very wide uh, range of local authorities endorsed by the Convention of Scottish Local Authorities and all uh, of the authorities was that the formula represented um, a reasonable and fair way to proceed. Now, uh, when I was in Renfrew last week, I was being pressed uh, at that meeting about the local government distribution formula in Renfrew so it's not, it's not that this is a unique issue that gets raised with me in different parts of the country um, I, I, I would point out that there'll be some uh, you know, other authorities in the country that won't raise this issue with me because they're entirely happy with the contents of the local government distribution formula. The principal reason why there's a difference between Orkney and the other two island authorities um, is really about loan charge support, um, which is a technical accounting characteristic of the the formula, but relates fundamentally to the level of borrowing that individual authorities have taken out. Um, I can assure you that, um, you know, there are other parts of the formula where. Uh, Orkney does better than other island authorities, for example on Special Islands Needs Allowance uh, Orkney receives £5.8 million um, and the other two island authorities receive £6 million each so the difference is really um, of a much minor level at at that point. So the formula is a, a means of distributing a complex range of different resources around the country but the objective of it is to relate it um, as close as possible to need within localities and the assessment of need is arrived at by looking at a range of different indicators, population, sparsity, deprivation and island character are amongst those factors.
2: Okay thanks John. Richard, could you um, address Richard's question about uh, salmon farming and can you also address the question from the lady whose name, I'm sorry I didn't catch, Sarah, um, about protection of scapa flow?
12: Thank you. I'll take Sarah's uh, question firstly over the ballast water policy uh, in Orkney waters. Now, when it comes to the exchange of ballast water, clearly there's potentially an environmental impact and that's why uh, the government's environmental agencies are working closely with the Council uh, as they revise their, their policy on ballast water. Because quite clearly if foreign vessels uh, come into your waters and then Uh, deposit ballast water that could potentially introduce alien organisms into our waters with potential damage. That's why it's got to be regulated and uh, thoroughly investigated and that's why we're working very closely uh, with the Council on this issue. So at the moment the revision is taking place of the policy at Council level and Scottish Natural Heritage are giving advice to the Council and working with them. So the answer, the question was, is the government working with the Council to try and get speedy resolution? The answer to that is yes. Of course, we have some concerns at the moment because the environmental advisors and the scientists are saying there is a potential risk under some possible scenarios. So, we have to work with the council to try and make sure we do protect the marine environment. And I guess it sort of relates to one of the questions previously about how we balance economic development with protecting our, our natural environment. So, we'll continue to work with the council on that. I think there's potentially some risk to the lock of Stenness. Uh, and the Natura site there. So under EU legislation we've got to protect the Natura sites and that's why SNH have got an interest in this particular issue. So I'll certainly keep a close eye on it uh, as a Stuart Stevenson environment minister. Uh, And In terms of the salmon uh, farming sector, well clearly for those of you who've been paying attention to Twitter and Facebook and the news hopefully you'll notice that Scottish Food and Drink Fortnight is just around the corner Uh, We're going to launch that in the next couple of days. So over the next two weeks, we're trying to persuade the world to eat a lot more Orkney uh, food and drink. So I hope you're going to join in with that over the next couple of weeks. And Scottish salmon and Orkney salmon is a big part of that enormous success story. Uh, So we are very, very supportive of the Scottish food and drink sector, particularly in Orkney, where it's so hugely important, uh, and the local salmon sector. And I know there's already about 60 jobs uh, locally, so it's good to hear there's some proposals to create new jobs Uh, as well. But of course, again, we have to have uh, the industry working uh, with the community, with the council, with ourselves, on making sure we're operating within environmental limits. And the purpose of the Aquaculture and Fisheries Bill, which is going through Parliament, is to make sure we can balance those interests. We've got wild fish interests, we've got the aquaculture interests, the wider interests over marine environment. So we have to balance all of that, and that's the purpose of the Bill. So the Bill is looking at introducing, for instance, the voluntary reporting of sea lice and other issues. Other countries do that. We don't do that here, and a lot of people think we should do it here. So let's get that balance right and let's help our salmon sector expand. That's very much the purpose of the legislation. We're currently considering all the consultations we've received, including many from the salmon farming sector. So I do assure you, Scottish Sea Farms, that we will be taking on board your comments and hopefully there'll be some areas where we can respond positively.
1: Back here and just put our hand up just now Hello, uh, Tim Deakin in Orkney Cheese
16: Company. Um, I've got a question. Is there anything that can be done to address the fact on business rates that Orkney Cheese is paying three times as much as a company on the Scottish mainland that is producing, uh, sorry, the company on the Scottish mainland is producing three times as much as Orkney Cheese? Is only paying a third of the business rates that are
3: cheeses pay Thank
13: you. Okay. you want to that? Yeah. Um, my name is Tim Morrison. I'd like to congratulate the government on its stance on equality and same-sex marriage. As someone who grew up here and suffered the effects of faith-based homophobia, I would like to know how the government intends to protect minorities from religiously-based slander and hate campaigns disguised as freedom of speech. And secondly, I would like to know how the government intends to ensure that lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgendered young people experience an education that supports and promotes their mental health and well-being, irrespective of the prejudices of a minority of their teachers.
1: And another short question told here. Let's getting through these much snappier now. We'll get the same back from the Cabinet secretaries and Ministers. It'll be great.
15: Um, Renata Andrews, Youth Council Coordinator at OECAS. Does the Deputy First Minister think that, as in Wales and Northern Ireland, all Scottish secondary school children should be able to access counselling in their schools.
2: Okay, Um, business rates first, it was Tim wasn't it? Yes, Tim uh, Orkney-Cheese, business rates, John.
6: Um, The business rate uh, valuation of a property is arrived at by the Local local Valuation Board Um, and there will be um, I'd be the first to concede there will be some inconsistencies, perhaps, between comparable properties. The inconsistency that you cited there sounded pretty wide uh, in relation to your treatment versus uh, other um, facilities. I assume that you've uh, appealed your business rates valuation? Is, um, is, de- is it determined yet? It was out, okay. um, Well, I think probably the best thing is if I, if we have a word afterwards, and I'll just take the details of what of the case. Uh, there will be variations. The variation you've talked about there um, strikes me as, as pretty wide. The government, um, the process of valuation is undertaken by independent valuation boards. It's not the government doesn't. Uh, we simply get um, given the valuation assessment that is provided as a consequence of that. But if I get some details from you, I'll look closely at the, the circumstances.
2: Okay, thanks for that John. Um, it was also Tim, wasn't it? The second question. I'm, I'm going to start the answer to this and then I'll hand over to Mike about the education issues that you raised. What, what the government is seeking to do in um, our response to an approach to same-sex marriage is uh, combine a number of principles. The principle of equality that I think most people in Scotland um, feel very strongly about uh, the principle of freedom of religion which again is extremely important Uh, and thirdly uh, promoting a Scotland where everybody uh, can live free of discrimination now you know I believe and maybe I'm an optimist I I believe it's possible to have a Scotland that combines all of these uh, principles and that's what we'll be trying to achieve not just in the substance of what we take forward but in the manner in which we take it forward and that I, I think places a responsibility on all of us in Scotland, regardless of what our individual view on same-sex marriage happens to be, we we all have a responsibility to approach this in in that spirit. And and I believe if we do, uh, as I said earlier on, uh, not uh, that we will get to a point where everybody will agree, but where we can work our way through this issue, stay true to those principles and enhance our process of democracy along the way. And that's uh, our aspiration, and it's what I certainly will will be working hard to achieve. Uh, I appreciate there are particular issues in particular areas. You've raised uh, issues around uh, education and I'm going to hand over to Mike. And Mike, could you also take on yeah. uh, the third question around counselling in secondary schools? Absolutely.
10: Um, it is very important and I, I, I absolutely endorse what you've just said about freedom of speech and, and equality. I think the point you're making, Deputy First Minister, is, is absolutely the correct one. We have to have the principles that guide us. Uh, there is no principle that permits, uh, and you've made the point, uh, hate-based teaching, uh, and that wouldn't be permitted in, in any school, and nor do I think, for example, that uh, in denominational schools uh, the Catholic Education Commission would wish to, uh, in any shape or form, see that as part of the curriculum. In denominational schools, Catholic schools particularly, though there are one or two other denominational schools in Scotland, uh, in the Catholic schools, the Catholic Education Commission is the principal advisor and supporter of the curriculum. Uh, they will be absolutely entitled in that process, and indeed that's the process we have at the moment, of saying what they believe to be true. But that is within the context of the normal law in which people would not be encouraged to, uh, indeed would be forbidden from encouraging prejudice of one sort or another. So there has to be freedom of speech, equality, and the earlier question we've had about freedom of speech is a correct one, and actually equates with yours. As long as both sides recognise in this debate that there has to be a fair discussion it is not a discussion about hate or prejudice and that cannot happen and we work very hard to make sure that that circle is squared within our schools so that young people get the best possible opportunity they can and that bridges into the question about counselling, where there needs to be um, the opportunity for young people to access counselling. Now I'm not going to, I couldn't give an, <coughs> an absolute guarantee that that would be available in every school in the way it is in uh, Northern Ireland and Wales. Not because I don't think it's the right thing to happen but because we have in every Uh, Education system, there are different arrangements that are put in place. For example, in Northern Ireland, they actually still have a selective system, and we wouldn't copy that uh, uh, automatically and put it into our system. But broadly, there should be equitable access to counselling and to support for all young people, whether it comes through the school, whether it comes through young people's organisations, or a couple of specialist organisations in Orkney that provide it, as there are in most areas. But I would want to see that, make sure that young people are supported. Advised, helped, and always, always, always protected against prejudice or unfair
12: treatment. Thank you. we
1: moving on quickly so we can make the questions even snappier.
12: Stuart Gray, uh, I'm speaking as an individual. Uh, uh, the Deputy First Minister uh, talked about um, uh, protection, uh, sorry, this is concerning same sex marriages, um, talked about protection for. Uh, Uh, for ministers, uh, uh, for teachers and uh, uh, for other um, concerned individuals. Uh, I have uh, a document that suggests that uh, this protection (coughs) for opting out of the redefinition of marriage may not be legally possible. Um, If this is the case, will the government still proceed with the legislation?
1: So, no, there's a lady back here, and then I've got a gentleman here. I'm
15: gonna try and get my Good afternoon. Speaker. My name is Andrea Spence Jones. I'm the service manager for Advocacy at Orkney. Um, I would just like to make a comment, actually, that does lead to a question, and that's while I celebrate and enthuse the advances in renewable energies and this entire sector in Orkney, the direct impact of this is unlikely to benefit the people we represent, and that is the people that are the, on the furthest edges of society. I, I, Sorry um, as with all other third sector agencies, we're constantly looking for more and more funding, and I appreciate that there are reductions and that affect all of us. However, we are simply firefighting. <coughs> this has a direct impact on our clients in that if we can't plan ahead, because we simply don't know if we'll have adequate funding to exist, and I'm sure that you're all aware that this advocacy is a statutory requirement for people under the Mental Health Act. So therefore I would just simply like to ask, would the Scottish Government be prepared to be explicit about the funding that we may have over a substantial period, which also would allow us not just to exist and provide a service, but to flourish and thrive, as with the the other renewable sector industries? And I would like to thank the Deputy First Minister for expressing a personal interest in advocacy at Orkney in her previous visit. Thank you.
1: Okay, and we've got a gentleman here.
16: Uh, Danny West uh, Westry Community Council, one of the North Isles. This is actually in, in three sections, but under the heading well, of long as transport. The sections, very quickly, yeah, sir. very quickly. Uh Firstly, regarding the new air ambulance contract, is the cabinet quite happy and contented that the new service will meet the shortfalls that's been addressed in the existing service over the last few years? Uh, secondly, uh, inter-island transport um, through the development of the islands of Orkney uh, through development trusts and that there's a greater need for transport links both air and sea between mainland Orkney and the islands and that's struggling at the moment to meet the capacity that's being required um, and that's going to grow in the future. The local authority put quite a bit of money into that every year Would the cabinet be willing to look at ways to see if they can meet some of that shortfalls in the shorter term. And the third part is looking at the longer term, looking forward to what we've been discussing a few years as a ferry replacement programme and sort of an update on what stage that is at. OK, three okay. questions. Hopefully we'll get three quick answers. OK. <laughs> into the final slots now. I'll, so. I'll
2: do my best, Bruce. Um, let me take same-sex marriage, first of all. Stuart's um, question is the Solicitor General here would uh, no doubt be very quick to remind me all Scottish Government legislation has to comply with uh, the law and uh, particularly around... Uh, equality uh, law, etc. We are very clear that, um, as you will understand, we've looked at this very, very closely. Protection for churches exists already in uh, current law, Schedule 23 of the Equality Act uh, 2010, it's a UK piece of legislation, uh, clearly uh, provides the ability for uh, religious organisations to opt out. Uh, We, uh, in our judgement, think that if we are to provide robust protection for Uh, An individual celebrant, say a church decided that it did want to celebrate same-sex marriages, but an individual celebrant uh, thought that was against their faith. Uh, We believe the current law wouldn't provide an absolute protection at the moment, so we've made very clear that we need to uh, secure an amendment to the UK Equality Act, and we're discussing at the moment with the UK government the form that that amendment would take. Any other protections we build in and they'll be subject to discussion, of course, have to meet the legal requirements uh, that we uh, are required to, to meet, but that's a, a very clear part of our process. John, I'm going to ask you to take on the question about advocacy and the third sector before coming back finally to the transport questions.
6: Um, some of the points, Andrew on, on the funding of the third sector I've made earlier on in one of my answers, but can, can I make a couple of points here? The first is that in terms of long term funding um, the government has given out a three year budget for last year, this year, the forthcoming year and the year after. So to the public agencies that will be funding you, they have clarity essentially about their budgets for a three year period. So there really is no um, argument why organisations that are funding an organisation like Advocacy Orkney cannot give you three year funding certainty. It's impossible to give you any funding certainty beyond that, I think it's quite understandable given the fact that we don't know the shape of public finances beyond, beyond that period. The second point I would make is that there is an absolute need for services of the type that you are providing in general but particularly in times of economic difficulty given the acute stress that people will experience. And therefore, as part of our approach in dialogue with local government and other public bodies, we stressed the importance of these arrangements being arrived at locally as part of an integrated solution. Uh, As I say, I'm going on after this event to see um, a number of third sector organisations where I, I know that we'll hear a bit more about this and we'll listen very carefully towards it. What we've tried to do is to delegate as much responsibility for funding decisions to local level so that localities can make their decisions which we hope will be better decisions than if we are sitting in Edinburgh trying to take those decisions and that principle of localism is one that we've um, taken forward as part of the funding of many public bodies um, but obviously I keep a very close eye on whether that is producing the right outcome at local level and I look forward to hearing more about that this afternoon.
2: Okay, thanks, John. And lastly, the, the three-part question from Danny. I'll uh, address the first part, which is about the uh, reprocurement of the air ambulance contract. Now, clearly, Scottish ministers are not uh, a contracting party The Scottish Ambulance Service is the lead agency in this. I, I As Health Secretary, I'm satisfied with the process they've gone through. I'm very well aware of the opinion that was expressed uh, and I'm sure continues to be expressed in Orkney about the uh, feeling that there should be a, a locally-based aircraft, uh, although that's not part of the reprocurement, procurement the needs of the island communities were very uh, central to the discussion around the reprocured service and the uh, contract that has been agreed will improve triage and tasking, uh, f- it will deliver faster flying times, uh, there's going to be an increase to the 24-7 availability of the fixed wing Aircraft, all of which is going to shorten the time uh, to get to patients and get patients to definitive care. So it will be an improved service. It has bigger aircraft as well. It will be an improved service uh, generally, but also particularly for people in the islands. And you'll also be aware that the ambulance service has, and NHS Orkney have recently contracted with Loganair uh, to. Uh, support the air evacuation from the outer aisles of non-emergency patients. So, you know these issues are very uh, much to the fore for the Scottish Ambulance Service as they should be, and they'll continue to make sure they're working as hard <coughs> as possible to address the particular needs of island and more remote communities. Uh, your next, uh, the next parts of your questions are about inter-island transport and ferry replacement. I'm going to hand over to Keith to answer those.
7: Yeah, the two parts of the question obviously relate to the services and the second part relating to the ferry replacements themselves which I know is problematic for the local community. Can I say that I've had representations on this from the three uh, MSPs here, Liam MacArthur, Jean Urquhart and Mike McKenzie as well, as well as having a number of conversations with both uh, Stephen Heddle and other councillors and the previous council leader. I know that in the past John Swinney has helped out in relation to some of the issues in relation to vessel replacement, but it is a big issue. I have to say these services are run by the council. It's only the council that can decide if they want to change that, such that the government must take over some of these services, which is a subject of, of discussion just now. Uh, and I think the council is very realistic in, in realising a lot of the fleet is coming to the end of its life at around about the same time. There are real pressures on the budget. There are real pressures going forward. So what we've said is the Scottish government officials will work with the local authority, which is happening just now to look at these issues and after last night's discussion I think what we we'll now do is try and take it to the same kind of approach that we took with the ferries plan across the whole of Scotland to say let's look at every single route that's there what the basis of it is if it's lifeline, if it's tourist if it's freight if it's a combination of these and see what has to happen going forward so that is we are well aware of the issue and we are in discussions with the council to see how we resolve those issues Ladies and gentlemen I'm sorry I can't
1: take any more questions this afternoon I've tried to get as many people in as I possibly could and a good spread around the room and I know there are two or three folk who said I said have tried to get in, I apologise for not being able to do that, but you do have the chance to fill in your questionnaires In terms, of, and we'll stick them in a the box and you we'll make sure you get a complete and full answer in that regard. I hope you'll agree we've had a very diverse range of questions this afternoon, um, answered I think ably by my cabinet secretary colleagues and ministers and what we'd like to do now is invite you down to the hub which is down the stairs for a cup of tea if you want, you get a chance to buttonhole them individually if you didn't get a chance to ask your question. And can I thank you very much for attending this afternoon putting us under such good scrutiny. And can you thank, you, thank yourselves? I think that's the best thing to do, actually.